Here we are back at another uh, episode of If It Be Your Will podcast, and uh, we're in season three now. Um, we're kind of getting our feet under us slowly here in this uh, chilly north coast, east coast weather. Um, however, we're going to get a lot of warmth in our hearts today, talking today with my really special guest, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, um, who uh, extreme singer-songwriter, um, graphic artist, uh, a comic creator, I guess we should say. I guess it's a graphic artist, eh, Jeffrey? It's like I, I, yeah. Um, that's a lexical gap. I was never happy with uh trying to figure out how to say comic book maker. That takes right. too, that's too many syllables. But <laughs> uh, yeah, there isn't really a satisfying word for somebody who writes and draws comics. Somebody needs to come up with a simple word for that yes i mean a lot of people are fond of saying cartoonist but right. uh that sounds almost misleading because i don't feel like what i make i don't feel like i make cartoons right. Um, right but cartoonist has become sort of the current acceptable term for an alternative comic book creator well uh, i accept that term i think that that's a, a fine term for sure um jeffrey i kind of like starting off these um you know, moments in time that we share together with, with kind of a little look back in time. Um, and like, where did you get started? Like, and I guess you have music and you have your art that, that kind of fused together, but did one start more than the other when you were first starting off with, with your, your art? Well, I was always into drawing and making comics since I was a little kid. Um, I was, uh, just really into reading comics. I didn't have a television in the house. My parents were sort of bohemian hippie types. Hmm. So there was no war toys, no television. And, uh, comic books was like my main form of entertainment from a very young age, even before I knew how to read. Hmm. Um, and so it was just sort of natural to think, you know, I want to be a comic artist when I grow up. It just seemed like a cool thing to do. Hmm. And for some reason, I've remained like in the enslavement of that six-year-old kid who <laughs> thought that would be a cool thing for grown-up Jeffrey to do. So just, I don't know why I need to listen to him, but uh, <laughs> that that little kid for some reason uh, the dominant that voice. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, surely a grown-up should... Uh, have a say in these things, but uh, I didn't start getting into making these songs until after I got out of college when I was like 21, 22. And um, I was trying to get work as an illustrator and I was making my comic books and selling them any chance I could. I would get them, you know, into little zine stores or I would sell my comics in Washington Square Park. I would just approach strangers and ask if they wanted to buy a homemade comic book. And I was selling my comics like at Grateful Dead shows and things like that. I, I just would uh, try to sell my art in whatever ways I could. And uh, But then, I, you know, meanwhile, I sort of discovered that there was this open mic 
on Monday nights and I could go hang out there and I would always draw all the performers. I would just sit there with my sketchbook every Monday night and I started signing up to play my own songs at the open mic nights. So I just became a very, a weekly regular there, uh, making up songs, playing songs and just, uh, you know, and trying to sell my comics there. Right. Right. What were some of your early themes in your comics when you were that younger child that lives inside your head? How, like, what were the themes that you would, you would dabble in? Well, um, I guess some of the first, uh, really like, uh, extended comic stories that I made, uh, w like when I was about 11 or 12, I was super into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm. And this was like before it had turned into a cartoon. This was when it was just a black and white comic book. That was a really big phenomenon among uh, comic book buyers mm. in that era. It really, they sort of became this tremendous force in the comic book world. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that it crossed over and, and they got pitched as a cartoon series. And then that turned into the toys and movies and everything else. Right. It was just kind of like it started out as just something that if you were in the know, um, it, it was so I, I was very inspired by that. And I had a team of superhero squirrels because um, there were a lot of squirrels around uh, my parents' apartment and um, in New York City there. Uh, I would always see a lot of squirrels around and the, the trees and stuff. So I had this team of samurai squirrels that were like a ripoff of the Ninja Turtles. Um, so I actually remember did. any of their names. Do you like who, uh, was your, who was the big guy in your group? Uh, the, uh, Colin and Kurt and of course there were four of them, just like the turtles. And yeah. uh, I don't remember the other names, but it, right. I actually did like five full issues that were big issues. They were you know they weren't even like little twenty page issues. They might have had forty or fifty pages each. Mm -hmm. Um, some of that stuff I still have. I wish I had all of it. I don't know where the rest of it went, right. but that, so that was, you know, some this of the first like, time before digital, right? So, oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, like in the, uh, physical stuff, right? It's yeah. I'm, I'm talking about like 1985, 86. Right. right. Um, so at that time I wasn't even making copies of the comics. It was just like, you would draw it and then you would just show it to anybody that you could show it to. And then when I got a little older, um, well, then in high school, I would be making comics. I had of uh, people like, you know, I, I had this team of like very violent superheroes that would like slaughter my teachers and stuff like that. And I would do all these comics about my, my teachers getting killed. And, uh, <laughs> was the school like that. not a happy place? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's probably, I mean, I, I was a, I wasn't like uh, one of the worst kids, but. Uh, I think if that stuff had been seen or discovered, I mean, this was like the era before everybody freaking out about school right. shooters and stuff, but sure, sure. that was definitely things that would happen in my comics was a lot of shooting and slaughtering and chopping up and um, <laughs> these kind of, uh, I mean, they were always kind of tongue in cheek and like, sure. yeah. you know, it, it was done somewhat humorously. Uh, but yeah, and then I guess in college I got into the more sort of alternative comic stuff of the nineties era, mm -hmm. um, Dan Klaus, eight ball comics and, uh, 
Joe Matt's Peep Show comic made a really big difference to me because that was like he made a lot of work about how much of a loser he was and like how lonely he was or just all of his disgusting habits of like pissing in a kitchen sink or picking his nose or something. And it was, that was like a real revelation that you could just sort of turn yourself inside out in a creative format. And that all the things that you thought were the worst things about you could actually make for really great entertaining art. And it could take all the worst aspects of your life and turn them into something valuable rather than something that was negative. So that really fed into my uh, early experience of learning how to make songs. It was like, oh, you don't have to like act like you're cool or, uh, you know, and then discovering, you know, that was sort of simultaneous with discovering Daniel Johnston. That was also like the biggest life changing thing that really impacted my whole perception of music and creativity. So that was sort of when I started making and recording songs was with the influence of Daniel Johnston. who I didn't even know was into drawing and comic books right. himself at that time. Uh, and then I guess I later learned that he was also like an illustrator and, uh, you know, really into comic books. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. I, I love how you said that where you kind of straddle that, um, wit and humor with, you know, nihilistic tendencies of, uh, <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've, I've been kind of leafing through some of your comics that are online, but I've also, been deep into your music and and they both play that line that fine line um which i find you know some of your songs are outright hilarious but with these really tragic undertones but they're um the way you place lyrics together and words together make it so um fascinating um tell me about so your start i read that you started in um open um mic nights in austin texas well, back at the turn of the century, like in two thousands, is that where you started to actually um, put yourself up on stage and play your songs for people? Uh, it's not an entirely accurate chronology, but I know that there's some of these things have like gotten around on the internet. For I think on maybe on my Wikipedia page it says something, or there, there's like I had started playing at the open mics in New York in uh, nineteen ninety eight. Um, and I, I recorded my first cassette of songs in 1998, um, and I continued doing that all through 1998 and all through 1999. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of selling these tapes of my songs and playing both at the open mic nights in New York City. And also, I started to get more and more opportunities to play concerts, like little little shows at little places and people would would uh i started to sort of make friends in the music scene Mm. and have more opportunities to play shows and then late in 2000 in uh, november of the year 2000 i took i moved to austin texas or i thought maybe i would move to austin i I basically i just took a greyhound bus Mm. to austin from new york and I wanted to just see what it would what would happen if I went to a city where I didn't know anybody and I didn't know anything, okay. and whether uh, I could try to make a life for myself because I'd lived my whole life in New York City, right. and now that I was like meeting all these people who were playing music, a lot of them had come to New York City in this very brave way, mm-hmm. uh, like my friend Gray Ravel, who was a songwriter, I was I really liked at the open mic. He had come from Los Angeles and he didn't know anybody in New York City. He, 
you know, he had no money. He just took his guitar and got on a bus and showed up in New York City. And I just thought that was such a great adventure and sounded so exciting. So I was like, where can I go to have that same kind of experience of just starting from zero? Hmm. Um, and Austin appealed to me because it was a city that I had no experience of at all. I had previously already like traveled through Chicago and San Francisco and Seattle and mm-hmm. a lot of the other American cities. But Austin was a place I'd never been where I really could have that experience of just knowing nothing and knowing nobody. Plus mm-hmm. it had the element that that's where Daniel Johnson had uh, sort of gotten originally known and where he had come out of uh, with his cassettes in the eighties. So it was like a little bit of a pilgrimage to, you know, the, the Daniel, the, the Daniel Johnston uh, hometown. Yeah. Well, so I can, when I was in Austin, I was content. I was trying to, you know, play at open mic nights and uh, continuing to try to, you know, make my comics and sell my comics and uh, try to figure out how I could play shows and how I could uh, do freelance illustration jobs for, local businesses and um yeah i was just continuing my kind of starving artist life and but it was while i was there that meanwhile back in new york city a lot of exciting things were happening for people that i knew in new york the moldy peaches um got signed to rough trade records in england at that time and they started to become very successful um, and get a lot of media attention and really were building up a significant fan base and rough trade records had asked the moldy peaches like do you know anybody else in the new york city scene that you would recommend that we look into hmm. and uh to my eternal gratitude they were like yeah you should check out jeffrey lewis um and they made a they made a cd of some of my songs and they gave it to jeff travis the head of rough trade records and this was like probably something that I, if I had been there in New York, I probably would have screwed that up in some way. I would have <laughs> said or done the wrong thing. Um, but the fact that it had nothing to do, I didn't even know this was going on. And they were able to, Adam and Kim, you have the moldy peaches, were able to sort of curate my stuff, which was only on cassette at that time. Right. They like sort of took some of the songs that they thought were the best ones and they put them on a CD, I guess, and they gave them to Rough Trade Records. So I got this email while I was still living in Austin from Rough Trade and that that was like, we've heard some of your stuff. Would you be interested in releasing this? Um, so that was like, a, that really made a huge difference in my life to have this opportunity to have these home recordings come out on a significant record label with right. uh, significant exposure in England at that time. So that happened in 2001 and uh, that really kind of, you know, made a really big difference in my life that suddenly it was like, I wasn't just some guy uh, selling cassettes for three bucks at an open mic. I somehow through very random circumstance, I I had a CD that was out on rough trade records Um, in England. It didn't really, it, it, they didn't really have much of an operation in America at first. They did a little later. Right. Um, What was that first record, uh, that first CD called that you got? What what was signed? What was the, the title of that one? So that one uh, was uh, was called uh, The Last Time I Did Acid, I Went Insane, and Other Favorites. And that ended up coming out on Rough Trade in September of 2001. Um, and at that time, a woman that I'd been dating in, uh, in New York was doing a semester studying in London. So I was able to go with my brother Jack 
and visit my girlfriend in London. And we stayed with her in London for about a week or maybe a little longer. And I was able to do a couple of very small gigs with mm -hmm. my brother while we were in London because the album had already come out in England. And that was like my first experience of playing to people that I didn't know personally. That was like the first time to play a show and there were people in the audience that had just heard of this record or they had read a review of it or they bought the record. And it was, that was really incredible to yeah. be like, oh, like people like this stuff that yeah. are not just like my friends coming to my gigs or something. Yeah. Uh, even though these were very small shows, it was kind of a, it, you know, it was really mind blowing to just be like, to kind of feel like, you know, we had made it in this way. My, my brother Jack and I were playing music together a lot okay. Okay. at that time. And then that also led to more opportunities because in the audience at one of those gigs was Ben Ayers, who was the guitarist in this band Corner Shop. And they were booking a tour at that time uh, for, they were planning to tour in early 2002. So Ben was like, oh, I really love the performance you did. Would you be an opening act on this corner shop tour? Mm -hmm. So that really threw me in at like the deep end of the swimming pool. And so early 2002, I ended up doing all these shows opening for corner shop, mm -hmm. you know, playing to pretty big audiences, 600 people, 700 people. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, completely out of my element. I probably had no <laughs> idea what a sound check was, what a monitor was, what a, mm -hmm. what a green room was, what a, you know what a merch table was all, all the kind of uh you know music biz touring sure. info yeah. Yeah. uh that was a real educational experience and i'm you know very grateful to corner shop for taking a chance on me Absolutely. but i was just That's too amateurish chance. to really uh capitalize on that because hmm. th it wasn't like i could go back and play those places again myself they it was like a whole it was too many levels removed from where i was at to right. be able to like do that right, right. Um, but what were those yeah. early shows like jeffrey like beef you know like what what were the feel to those shows when you first went overseas and were playing in front of people that knew or know knew of the music that you were making what what was that experience like for you it was just incredible i just like could barely sing because i was like i couldn't wipe the smile off my face it was just so exciting it was just unbelievable i mean yeah. you know it was like uh, maybe there were 15 people in the room but it was like 15 people that i didn't know personally that were excited to see me and hear these songs and that was just it that was like uh yeah it was one of the happiest most exciting experiences well that i've had you remember like in the crowd like seeing people sing along with you like did did that happen during those early tours where people would actually know the lyrics to your songs? Uh, yeah, uh, people knew, you know, uh, there was, you know, and people would ask for autographs and stuff. It was like, mm. um, but I really benefited from the tremendous, uh, the, the success and the outreach of the moldy peaches really benefited me quite a lot okay. because the moldy peaches were all the press about them. And in interviews and stuff, they talked about how they were part of the so-called New York anti-folk scene. Right. And it really got a lot of people curious about what is New York anti-folk. Hmm. And when they were curious about that, it was like, oh, well, there's this guy, Jeffrey, if you know, if you like this stuff, right. uh, where else are you going to, you know, the next thing that you would check out would be my stuff. So okay. 
I kind of got this uh, kind of runoff effect. I basically just kind of rode their coattails. Um, <laughs> well, and, I uh, mean, your songwriting is is superior. I mean, you have a, an amazing um, grasp on lyric and music. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is like? I I know I know anti folk. You know, it's the, the the term. You know, like indie pop or whatever. It, like to you, what does that mean? Like, what is that? How does that represent the style that you play? Well, I never heard the phrase anti-folk when I started making these songs. Um, and when I started hanging out at the Sidewalk Cafe and playing at the open mic, um, people started saying like, oh, Sidewalk Cafe, home of the anti-folk scene. And, hmm. you know, if you were playing at Sidewalk, you were considered part of the anti-folk scene. And, um, you know, you would be asked to perform at the Sidewalk Anti-Folk Festival every hmm. year. And um, there was a little fanzine there called anti-matters that would come out once a month and they would have interviews with people that played at sidewalk and they would have reviews of people's albums and it would be like you know what's going on in the world of anti-folk and it was it was just this little self-contained scene i mean sidewalk probably fit a maximum of about 75 people or 70 people it was like a small room right. but because it sort of had this own it's for its own phrase for itself like this is the anti-folk scene and here's the little zine anti-matters about the anti-folk scene and we're going to have the anti-folk festival uh you know do you want to play a set at the anti-folk festival it was like its own little self-contained self-invented world hmm. and it was like hmm. uh you know it was really fun to just be a part of that stylistically it didn't make a whole lot of sense because basically anybody who played at sidewalk no matter what kind of music they played was considered to be anti-folk and part of the anti-folk scene hmm. but ironically I feel like what I was doing kind of almost made more sense for that phrase than what most other people were doing. Hmm. Um, I feel like this idea of anti-folk uh, maybe makes more sense for the kind of lo-fi stuff that I was making and the hmm. stuff that I was making with my brother Jack uh, kind of fits that description more than what a lot of people at Sidewalk were doing. So. Uh, you know, on one hand, it just means anybody who ever played at Sidewalk Cafe. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, it has some kind of stylistic element of uh, hmm. mixing folk, punk, lo-fi, uh, you know, something like that. And then when the Moldy Peaches came along a little later, they also, even though they had already been playing shows on the West Coast and they had, they had existed prior to playing at Sidewalk, they just fit right into that thing better than anybody else had before i mean the anti-folk scene had been going on for 15 years at that point and then when the moldy peaches showed up it was like oh that's what anti-folk is all about and they had never heard of it but it was like <laughs> it was like this self-fulfilling prophecy right right and i just i mean recently listened to the collaboration you did with kimio dawson from the moldy peaches the bundles um you had a release that came out in 2010 what was that whole experience like working with Kimia and, and collaborating with with somebody, you know, from another band that you had listened to and admired and kind of helped you along the way a little bit? Like, what was that collaboration with her? Well, that actually started before before a lot of this other stuff happened. Um, <laughs> like when I had moved to Austin uh, in late 2000. Uh, Kimya was one of the friends of mine from New York that I was still in like pen pal contact with, you know, cause these were like the, 
it was kind of the early days of using email and I was mostly still writing a lot of letters. Hmm. Um, so Kimya and I would write a lot of letters back and forth and, um, you know, we had, we had not hung out a whole lot in New York. We'd hung out a little bit in New York and I was actually at her first ever solo performance because everybody kind of knew her as like, Oh, she's the person who plays with Adam in the moldy peaches, but mm-hmm. she didn't, she didn't yet have a solo thing going on. Mm-hmm. And she had, she had said that she was going to play a little solo show in the Bronx. And it was, I think it was her first ever time playing solo. And I went there with some friends uh, to see her and there were maybe like five people in the room and we were all just at, utterly flabbergasted. Like it was the first time that anybody had heard, I guess, I don't know how long she had been working on those, that first batch of her solo songs, right. but it was just pretty shocking. It was like, mm. Oh my God, like this is, you know, five levels beyond any kind of songwriting that I've ever heard anybody do. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just a pretty staggering experience to be like, oh, she's not just the person who backs up Adam in the Moldy Peaches. She's like the best songwriter I've ever heard. Um, so, you know, I stayed, we, we stayed in contact and she came to visit me when I was in Austin because um, she knew that I was like super lonely down there. And she was also like me. She was a fan of just taking random trips on a Greyhound bus and she wasn't scared of being on a bus for three days and nights. And she did a, she did that sort of thing quite a lot herself. Yeah. So she was like, it just sounded like fun to her to take a bus down and visit <laughs> me in Austin. So, uh, yeah, early in 2001, she did visit me for about a week in Austin. And during that time, we made up a bunch of songs together, hmm. which was kind of her way of uh, thinking of a fun way for us to hang out. Because although we'd been pen pals, we hadn't really spent that much time hanging out in person. And right. these kind of, uh, you know, collaborative songs were just kind of like a really fun way to just hang out with somebody like, Hey, let's make up a song together. Like yeah. you write a couple verses, I'll write a couple verses. And I had never done, you know, that was sort of very eye opening that you could hang out with people and make up songs together. And it was like, we, you know, and of course, cause she's such a brilliant songwriter, right. even when she's just messing around, throwing out random lines, <laughs> I was, you know, really impressed and just, you know, whatever silly thing we were throwing together, she would just elevate it hmm. with all these great ideas and um, hmm. and even great musical ideas. I mean, she's hmm. not considered like, you know, she's considered a very lo-fi musician, but just those simple keyboard parts that she would come up with, they were all just, to me, it was just perfect. I was like, wow, this is like, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I think is great. But then we, you know, that, so, but that was way back in 2001. And that was like before I had dealt with rough trade. In fact, in a certain way, it was almost like when Kimya saw how pathetic my life was in Austin and like how broke and lonely my life was that I, you know, maybe that even inspired her a little to want to help me and mm-hmm. get me signed to rough trade, you know, later on mm-hmm. when, uh, right. when the right. moldy peaches helped, helped make that connection it might've been something of an act of pity after she saw my, my lowly circumstances firsthand. Hmm. Um, I don't know. But anyway, it wasn't until many years later that we had right. the opportunity to record those songs in a studio. And when those Kimmy were the songs that you guys the, had worked on years before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, nice. you know, went back, you know, a, a few years later, 
when Kimya was no longer working with Rough Trade Records and she was living in the Northwest and she was releasing records with K Records, which is the great mm-hmm. indie label um, out of Olympia, Washington, uh, Kimya was like, well, why don't you and your brother and your old drummer Anders uh, come out to Olympia? We'll play some shows and we can record those old songs because uh, I have access to the, the K Records recording studio, which mm-hmm. wasn't really like a real studio. It was just a... And also um, Carl Blau, who's a musician who has records on K Records, he works as the K Records recording person. So he had some microphones and stuff. So we ended up, he ended up collaborating with us and we were like, oh, let's make up some, while we're all here together, let's make up a few more songs, including Carl Blau, because he was there to record us. So I think that all happened very rapid, you know, maybe it even was in one day or like two days or something that we were like, let's make up some new song. We record the old songs together. <laughs> we'll come up with some parts. Carl, why don't you play keyboard on this or saxophone on that? And let's make up some new songs together. So yeah, so me and Jack and Anders and Carl and Kimya just kind of put that album together very rapidly in the basement of the K records using some of the songs that Kimya and I had written in 2001 right. and some new songs that we just made up there. Great. Amazing. What a story. I mean, well, <laughs> your stories are so fascinating, Jeffrey. Like your life experiences, wow, um, are really interesting. Um, it's great to kind of get this this timeline um, from you. Um, as we kind of wrap up, because um, we're getting close to our time here, you just put out last July um, A-Sides and B-Sides, which is a bunch of material that you hadn't released yet. Um, how How... How did that come to be, and how was how's the reception been to, um, you know, these new, new old songs that you just put up? Well, uh, the reception has been horrible. Um, <laughs> the uh, well, it was really just an experiment because I yeah. wanted to learn about self-releasing stuff through streaming. I had yeah. never, uh, you know, I'd done a little bit during the pandemic. I had had obviously a lot of time to experiment with ways I could do stuff just from my apartment. Right. So part of that experimentation was, well, I could release some stuff on Bandcamp or what if I release some stuff on Spotify or what would happen if I release stuff on Spotify that I don't put on Bandcamp and what happens if I release stuff on Bandcamp I don't put on Spotify and what happens if I release stuff, you know, just on whatever, you know, here's something that's just on CD. It's not on my Bandcamp or on my Spotify. And here, you know, so I just it was just sort of like a. I was just sort of playing around with what would happen if I tried this and tried that. Right. What you know, what's more effective? Like what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stakes were very low because I was just making recordings at home that didn't cost any money to make. And also, I realized I had all of these previously recorded tracks, either from previous studio sessions over the years or things that were left off of albums that were just sitting around on my laptop. And I was like, well, I could release some of those and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So that was, and the title of that album is Asides and B-Sides. It's supposed right. to be like a pun, like Asides right. and B-Sides. Right, I got um, you. Was it, was it not called Nonsense though when it first came out? or Well, I was learning how to do the so-called waterfall release on Spotify. That's what okay, artists okay. call it when you release one song at a time. Okay. So what you do is you release one song. The first one I released was um, You're Invited. And then a few weeks later, about six weeks later, you released the second song. And I think the second song was what I love most in England is the food. Mm-hmm. And when you release the second song, you include the first song as track number two and you okay. delete 
the first song. So at first there was just a release called You're Invited. Then I deleted that release and released What I Love Most in England is the Food. And that was a two song release, which included What I Love Most in England is the Food and You're Invited. Then you, a few weeks later, you delete that and you release a three song <laughs> release called Nonsense. And that has Nonsense, You're Invited, and What I Love Most in England is the Food, and so on and so forth. And each right, time you right. keep deleting the previous version and putting it up with one new song. And that's supposed to be the most effective modern way to release stuff into the streamosphere. You just keep <laughs> dropping, you keep dropping one song at a time every few weeks, but you can re-include the previous songs. Okay. So then finally that was, uh, I decided to just wrap up that project and be like, okay, here's all of those songs. <laughs> and I'm just going to call it asides and B sides. And it's a bunch of just previously unreleased Okay. material it's just a bunch of leftover stuff that didn't you know it was just sitting around on my laptop right. so it's not my best stuff i was just an experiment but right. um i think it's i love it i mean i i obsessively listened to it when it first came out well i'm I glad mean, some people like it but when that really old cat dies i mean what a song <laughs> I love that well song so thanks but what it what it what it seems to have done it's greatly damaged my uh my algorithmic status oh. um, by releasing like you know these sort of leftover songs mm. uh i was for a while i had like 120,000 monthly listeners mm. on spotify which i guess is a pretty respectable number i mean it's not mm -hmm. as many as kimya dawson or uh you know, it's certainly not as many as like the mountain goats or something like that. But mm. in terms of like indie artists, 120,000 monthly listeners is pretty darn yeah. good. Yeah. But since I started releasing those asides and B sides tracks mm. every month, my monthly listeners would just go down and down and down. Mm. And I lost about 30% of my wow. listenership <laughs> from putting wow. that out. So now That's I'm down good. to about 80,000 monthly listeners you think it might be cyclical though like because example on my blog i have that too peaks and then boom, big valleys and then it comes back up higher and then goes down then goes back up higher <laughs> anyway, well I, so far it's just dropping and dropping so <laughs> uh if you have if you own stock in jeffrey lewis streaming you're screwed but well, that I might be that might be because those songs are not my best material like they were outtake leftover songs i mean it's possible that if I get, maybe I can get back on, on top by releasing, you know, whenever I put my next quote real album out, right, right, maybe I'll right. build back up. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was an interesting so the experiment. Result. The streamified experience was, it's still um, in the work, still in a, a big question mark kind of, is it effective or not? Right. In your mind. Uh, well, it was certainly effective in destroying my listenership, <laughs> uh, which was not supposed to be the effect. Well, I hope that resurfaces and like all life, it's a circle and it comes back around. Um, but Jeffrey, just to kind of like wrap things up here. Like what's what's coming down the pipe for you over the next, you know, this year, 2024? What what what's what's going down? Well, uh, I recorded a new album with my band. Um, a while ago we actually recorded it a year ago hmm. um and i still have not figured out a release situation i'm talking to different record labels and i'm trying to figure out wait maybe i should put it out myself i, I don't know what the best the, you know the industry and the 
the pros and cons of doing it in different ways uh, is rather confusing. Um, so hopefully that will come out as soon as I can get that out in some way that makes sense to do. Um, and yeah, I'm also experimenting with having my bandmate Mallory. She's been playing a uh, violin and keyboard in my band for a couple of years. I'm, I'm trying to not spend quite as much time myself doing the tour booking work. So I'm experimenting with having Mallory book, uh, uh some spring tour dates in the Southern USA. Um, and sort of in exchange, she's going to be the opening act on that hmm. tour. So, uh, so we'll see how that goes. That we'll see if if she manages to put the tour together. That'll save me a lot of time, and she'll mm -hmm. and she'll be happy with that because she'll be able to you know she'll be playing sets of her own right. stuff to open the nights. So that's you know we're sort of in the early stages of of doing that plan, yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah, I would like to be working. I, I recently released my new comic book issue, Statics issue number two, came out a couple months ago. So. Um, I would like to be working on my new, you know, issue number three of my new statics comic series. Um, so I'm sort of writing some ideas for that new issue. Um, I recorded a bunch of home recordings in 2023 that I might put on Bandcamp soon. I've been doing that the last few years. Like at the end of each year, I kind of put a little batch of home recordings on Bandcamp. Like here's sort of a, almost like a diary or a sketchbook of all the sort of song demos that I made during the year. So I might compile my 2023 collection soon. I have all, so I, yeah, there's, a, there's always various stuff. You're very busy, Jeffrey, very busy, um, which is great. It's great for us because we get to hear um, your stuff, your music and read your comics. So um, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, this has been such a, a blast. I'm, I lost track of time a bit just talking, but I appreciate your, um, your joining me and sharing all of these wonderful uh, experiences that you've had as a, as a musician. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me and uh, best of luck to you in 2024. Yeah, absolutely. Happy new year to you and all the best with your, uh, with your art. And I'll be, uh, I'll be following you. Thanks. I know that everything will get better. And I know that everything will get worse Who took all the bills in my wallet? Or did I fill it up in reverse? Taking all the chips to the table Before they're gonna turn out the light Seems like it'll never be worth it But you never know when it might So I'm taking myself to the cleaners Walking on the only street that I trust And I'll dig my own grave a bit deeper Till I get a diamond out of the dust Once I didn't have any money Then I had a little success Once I had a life in the future Now I got a little bit less Play a slot machine for a living Never have a day to relax Everything is constantly spinning Clinging to the edge of the tracks Try to keep a grip on the handle Hoping that it doesn't go bust I guess I gotta get a little more dirty Till I get a diamond out of the dust Welcome to the palace of paintings It's incredible to see what it cost Welcome to the giant casino Built by all the people who lost 
I know I'm just a drop in the bucket But I wanna still make a splash If I had another leg I'd be happy That's one more pocket where there might be some cash Book myself a room at the dungeon Take the punishment that I must Working on the loneliest chain gang Till I get a diamond out of the dust Driving off the side of a mountain While you're still in the air, it's not wrecked Take a little look out the window Nothing that I didn't expect Once I didn't have any chances Then I caught the tropical bug Once there was a pile of options Then I swept it under the rug Always had a gambling fever Got squeezed but I never got crushed Begging for a dime in the darkness Till I get a diamond out of the guts